in an overarching way, we continue in the series we began this week on providence, but we're taking a week or two out of Genesis 37 through 50 because we've got a good number of folks away at the couples retreat this weekend. We want to be lifting them up in our hearts even as we worship here. And next week we have the wonderful time of celebrating God's faithfulness in the 30th anniversary of UPC. So I want us to uh, look at Luke chapter 15 and some particular things about the Lord Jesus that flow out of things that we're talking about this morning. But this morning our text, which we'll read in just a moment, is from Luke chapter 8. Uh, but uh, I want to pray and then I want to just introduce the beginning of Luke a bit and then I will read uh, our text, have us read it together. So let's go to our Father in prayer. Father, how amazing that by both deed and by inspiring and leading those you prepared to write the scriptures, you have given us your word in action, and then your word written. And most of all, your word living as you sent your son among us to take on flesh. We would begin by bowing and worshiping you as creator and king and as the one who has come close to us in your son and by your spirit. Would you open your words to us that we might shine before the world in ways that point to who you are and to your open arms and the cross of Jesus towards us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Wonder and grace abound as you read through the early chapters of the gospel according to Luke. We won't be taking the time to do that, but just a few reminders that Luke in his gospel relates to us, the person and the works of Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the carpenter trained by Joseph in Nazareth. Luke writes of Jesus' miraculous birth. We hear of John the Baptist, his cousin, coming aware that his cousin Jesus is indeed the long-promised Messiah, the one that John himself has been called to proclaim. We see Jesus tempted by the enemy in the wilderness, driving out of evil spirits, people being healed of various diseases, and the town of Jezreel in Nain, the raising of the widow's son from the dead. All this and more unfolds in the early chapters of Luke's gospel. Chapter 8 brings us to Jesus' parable of the sower, where Jesus says that those who are truly the sons and daughters of God, the sons and daughters of the kingdom, will live lives that produce fruit, as he tells the parable of the sower, and that God's ruling in our hearts is not to be hidden under a jar, but will shine forth. And Jesus is both so comforting in his teaching and yet so jarring that he says that those who are closer to him than his earthly kin, like his mothers and brothers, who in that chapter are coming to him to see him as he's teaching the crowds, he says that those who hear the word of God and do it 
are his real family. So he's setting things on their head from the way that the world looks at things. So now our text, Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 25. One day he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I had a professor in seminary, Stan Ellison, who uh, took the work of uh, a man he knew named Johnston Cheney, who on his deathbed, uh, memorized the Greek New Testament over many, many months of illness. And one of the things that Cheney did, and it's a tool, it's not the Word of God, we just read the Word of God, but he in the Gospels put together every Greek phrase from the various incidents in the four Gospel traditions into one story. Initially, it was called The Life of Christ in Stereo. It's still in print, but it has a different title. And I want to take the time to read you through, though again, I tell you, it's not the Word of God, it's a tool uh, to help you get a picture of the window into the event that is there. But this is what Johnston Cheney came up with, putting every Greek phrase, leaving nothing out in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's rendering of this event. That evening, when Jesus saw large crowds surrounding him, he ordered his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So his disciples left the crowd and followed him into the boat, taking him just as he was. They sailed off, accompanied by several other small vessels. As they sailed, behold, a violent windstorm swept down on the lake. Waves began breaking over the boat, swamping it and placing them in grave danger. Jesus himself was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. His disciples woke him. They were crying out, Master, Master, we're about to die. Lord, save us. Teacher, don't you even care if we die? Why are you so afraid, he said to them, you who have so little faith. Then he got up, rebuked the winds and the raging water, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The storm died away, and an intense calm replaced it. Where is your faith, Jesus said to the disciples. How is it that you have no faith? The men were astonished and filled with overwhelming awe. What kind of man is he? They said to each other, who is this that even wind and sea obey his command? What an amazing window into the reality of the ministry of our Lord Jesus before we dive into the heart of what I want to say this morning, a couple of preliminary comments. Uh, the Bible records 
real events in real places. And I want you to hear these words from Luke 8 uh, and remind you of that, that we are not making up some, as Peter said, foolish old wives' tales and passing them on to future generations. The Sea of Galilee in northern Israel is about 12 and a half miles from north to south, about seven and a half miles at the widest point, east to west. And the lake's surface is about 700 feet below sea level. I found it quite eerie to be standing there and thinking about the Mediterranean Ocean not too many miles away that was 700 feet above my head, hoping that God didn't decide that was the moment to uh, break a crack through to that lake. The lake's surrounded by high terrain on three sides. On the west, you've got the incredibly beautiful cliffs of Arbel that are an amazing hike. Uh, on the east, you've got the Golan Heights, uh, where my late friend uh, Yehuda Levy, as a boy, sat under a tree uh, to warn his fathers and uncles as they rode the tractors in that bread uh, basket of Israel in the fields as people were shooting at him from the heights of Syria up on those Golan Heights. And just about 30 miles to the north is snow-capped Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet above sea level at its peaks, and 700 feet below sea level, you have the surface of the lake. The rifts and ravines, ravines that cut down through those high places into that lake channel the cold air from the mountains and the hills, and a smooth surface of the lake within a few minutes can turn into the kind of storm, except this one was really different for the disciples uh, that our text describes. This terrain was home base for Jesus for a lot of his ministry, but if you've read the Gospels, you know that some of the disciples in those boats were fishermen. This is where they plied their trade. This was home turf. This is where they were comfortable. They knew the weather. They knew what could happen. Secondly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read the combined account, uh, give three different titles to Jesus and three different cries that are made out to him in this incident. Lord, teacher, master, master, save us. Don't you care we are perishing? We are perishing. And the critics of the Bible just love this kind of stuff. They say, you see, Jesus, uh, we don't really know what he said, and, and the disciples uh, uh, they weren't sure, they just kind of made it up or they adapted it to their purposes. And I can tell you the books I've got on my shelf, uh, so many of them, that speak this kind of nonsense. I say it's nonsense because of this. Uh, have you figured out, just in listening to the text, that there was more than one disciple in the boat? In fact, we now know there were more than one boat. There was more than one boat. And when there is about to be a shipwreck and the boat is going under, even if these men are to be the elders of the church, they don't call a committee meeting and appoint a spokesperson. And that is the foolish implication of a lot of the critics of the biblical text. Do you think there was just one disciple talking at a and that they were waiting their turn as the boat is finally about to go down? The Bible is true. Sometimes the gospel accounts differ because more was said than one of the writers 
recorded. Sometimes they differ because Jesus told the same story, a parable or parable in multiple settings. And like any good teacher, and Jesus is the greatest of teachers, you adapt your story to the situation. You can trust the Bible. That message is brought to you by the author. Let's scrutinize this incredible event uh, in the lives of our apostles. The heart of the passage is so easy to miss because we've, some of us in Sunday school or BBS become so familiar with this text that we in our mind's eye uh, see uh, the choppy waves and the little boats and Jesus either asleep or standing up commanding. Uh, I remember walking for the first time when I was in campus ministry in Boston uh, through uh, the floors of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum on the Fenway Park area. And all of a sudden I turned a corner and here in front of me, before it was stolen a few years ago, was Rembrandt's painting that you could walk right up to and touch if a docent wasn't close. And I remember standing there just in awe of what he was able to picture of the drama of that moment. But what's going on here? I want to suggest to you this morning that if you put this all together, Jesus deliberately led his disciples into a storm. He was training them. He was teaching them to be the leaders of the church. He got in the boat first, called them into the boat with him. And that's the first main heading I want you to think about, is that Jesus often teaches us as his disciples on our own turf. Uh, some of the lessons that we most need to learn are learned uh, on the ground on which we're familiar. Because familiar ground, whether it's our work or our family situation or our church and the way that we things are supposed to run, are where we think we've got it under control. But I want to say to you, when Jesus is around, things are never under our control. And there are things that he wants to teach us. These disciples had home port, Sea of Galilee. They'd fished at night before. They'd fished in storms before. But this time, the water is in the boat instead of the boat in the water. I mean, as I think of this reality, I think, you know, Bilge Pumps Incorporated could not have kept up with what was happening in the boat. Some of you uh, may have seen years ago the miniseries The Winds of War. Hermann Wouk, the author, wrote the novel about an incident in World War II when the first U.S. destroyers, we were not yet into the war, uh, were uh, going along with the caravans of ships that were taking aid to Great Britain as they were already in the heart of the battle against the Third Reich. And in the book, as Wook tells it, a Third Reich U-boat commander spots for the first time these U.S. destroyers. And he doesn't dare attack them without orders from Berlin because it could bring uh, America into the war. And so he radios Berlin for permission. But guess what? The Fuhrer is asleep. It's in the middle of the night. And none of the top brass in the German command and the Navy want to wake him up. And they dither. Should we wake him up? Should we not wake him up? And when the time comes that they finally wake him up, it's too late for the U-boat commander to do anything. I thought of that film in the book when I read this text. 
the disciples. I wonder when they thought about waking Jesus up. Uh, uh, Lord, the wind's starting to blow. Oh, no, 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 Master, keep sleeping. It's uh, blown this way uh, before. Uh, uh, it's blowing harder now. We're having trouble staying on course. No, 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 we, we got this, one of the other disciples says. Uh, but it finally gets to the place when the boat's about to sink. And they're probably bailing water for an hour after it stops the storm. And finally they say, Jesus, wake up, please, Lord, don't you even care? And I think the reason that they waited is that they know they're kind of the big cheese guys that are going to leave this thing, whatever it is that Jesus is creating, uh, and they know they're supposed to have it together. I mean, after all, they're going to be the apostles, let alone pastors and, and elders of particular flocks, and pastors are supposed to have it get together, right? They're not supposed to have somebody ask for prayer requests for them before they get up in the pulpit to to preach. I mean, that's not the way it's supposed to be, is it? This is not what they expected, but it was beyond them, and so they cried for help. Lord, don't you even care? This wasn't the way they thought it was supposed to be. Uh, Jesus had promised them the abundant life. They'd signed on for a blessing, and an abundance of water was not what they wanted. It was smooth sailing with Jesus. I mean, after all, look at all of the incredible things that he's doing. Lord, how dare you allow things into our lives that we can't handle? I mean, we're apostles. We've got to have it together. But Jesus teaches us on our own turf. Uh, this time it's too much water. Another time it's too many fish. Sometimes it's too many people, not enough food, too much food. Baskets full of food left over. Do you get the picture? Jesus is a boat rocker. Always has been, always will be. In the land of the status quo, Jesus will eventually be public enemy number one. Which is why a lot of people are interested in a vague God. But an intrusive God who dares to enter into our experience with his providence? I don't know if I want to get involved with that kind of thing. I mean, religion is fine, but this Jesus is, uh, he's different. What is it in your life right now? Too much red ink, not enough black, too much work, no work at all. We heard a beautiful song last Sunday, I was in tears in good hands, about providence and the ability or the inability to birth children. Or is it a different issue? For many, it used to be finding the right gal or the right guy or having them find you. But uh, in our day, it's just confusion. Who am I? What am I supposed to be? How is, does this fit together? How do I have friendships? How, how do I deal with the loneliness in the midst of all the chaos? Romans 1 and other passages reveal that King Jesus is a boat rocker. He sometimes lets us see the hurtful fruit of the bad choices that we make in our culture, that we might in the midst of the storms finally cry out to him and ask him, uh, to wake up. I have a friend who says that God often greases the tracks that we choose to run on. That's a good application of Romans 1. You want to try it that way, God says? Be my guest and see what happens. Self-made men and women, product of unskilled labor. And finally, we cry out and say to Jesus, wake up. But not only does he teach us on our own territory, he seeks to shatter our limited expectations of God. 
He teaches us on our own turf, but he wants to shatter our limited expectations of God for what's going on and supposed to go on in our lives. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, I loved you as a little child. Gentle Jesus, now I'm old, my love for you has grown so cold. Gentle Jesus, what is wrong? Are you so weak that now I'm strong? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, kick up the waves and make them wild. Kick up the winds and blow me down that I might crown you with a kingly crown. You see, it often takes a storm. That's not great poetry, but it makes the point. That sometimes uh, our expectations are so small. Many of us have only children's expectations of Jesus. One fraternity brother said to another, I'll bet you 20 bucks you can't say the Lord's Prayer. The other brother said, oh yeah, you're on. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And the other guy gave him the 20 and said, darn it, I didn't think you knew it. (laughs) It's an old joke, but it still points to the foolish, distorted information that a lot of seemingly intelligent folks use to avoid getting close to God because they don't know the depths. They don't know the reality. All they know is the cultural light statements limited expectations. You see, the disciples were beginning to believe that Jesus had cleansed lepers, cast out unclean spirits. They'd seen him heal paralytics, make Peter's mother-in-law well. Those are not small potatoes, and they were impressed, but it's not small potatoes for a child to want Jesus to watch over him or her while she sleeps. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. But Jesus always seeks to deal with the problem of limited expectations. Children and disciples are all supposed to grow in their faith. Jesus had the disciples set sail into deeper waters. They thought they were on familiar territory, but his presence changed the scene. He led them out on the lake in order to shatter their preconceptions. Jesus and gale force winds didn't go together in their vocabulary yet. But they were about to. Think about it. It's not at all clear that the disciples knew what they expected Jesus to do when they woke him up. But when they got desperate enough, they knew at least that they wanted him awake, that they wanted him involved in their lives. We ought to praise God that Jesus is involved with us too. If he didn't sometimes make us desperate, we'd never raise our expectations. Sometimes when you cry out to God to work in your life, you may not like what comes. But if you will receive it as from Him, you will find blessing in it. And you will find ways to bless your neighbors. Don't have time to get into it. I was reading 2 Corinthians 1 this week and I thought, wow, that's what Paul's saying. When Jesus leads us into storm, He uses the storm so we can minister to others. Because we learn that he's dependable. We've got to get past Jesus and survive. To Jesus and missions, ministry, discipleship, growth. Jesus and why not. Jesus and interim pastorates. Be careful how you respond to the fact that you've got one. Not because I'm so wonderful, but because I'm daring enough to believe that God has something wonderful for us together that can take the best of what UPC has been in the past and add things to it we have never thought of. 
And that this time to slow down and take a look at who we are can be really important. Do you realize that Jesus wants you to depend on him even more than he wants things to run smoothly? Did I just say that? Some of you are having struggles. Is it your marriage? Jesus wants your attention. Is it your children, young or adult? Children, are you struggling with your parents? Jesus wants your attention. Is it your body, your health? Jesus wants your attention. Since I was, you were asked to pray for me, uh, let me tell you something. I uh, uh, had some surgery back at the end of June. went very well, but I'm dealing with complications. And uh, a week ago Wednesday, I had nephrology tubes inserted kidney tubes. I drank to finish dealing with some complications. Uh, Friday, they had to replace one of the tubes, which had a leak in the external apparatus. The doc told me the replacement minus the prep and all the stuff that goes on, one to two minute fix. Wrong. I didn't understand all that the interventionist uh, radiologist was saying to his colleague there as I'm under this little oxygen tent with local anesthetic. Uh, but just before he asked if he could give me more anesthetic, I got it that the internal part of the original tube that he was removing was shaped a little more like a pretzel than the loop that it was supposed to be. And that one of my ribs that Adam didn't get to give to Eve was somehow in the way. I remember that much of the explanation. That's enough detail. I got through it, but I was in the moment and am very glad that Jesus is my captain. That I ride in his boat, not that doctor's boat. The doctor just doesn't know he's in Jesus' boat when he's around me. But I want everybody to come to see maybe they're in Jesus' boat. That's part of what it means to be witnesses as we live out the life. You don't need to ask if Jesus wants to be involved. A lady disagreed with a godly preacher one time. He said we ought to take everything to God. She said we should only take the big things. He thought for a moment and very gently said to her, Madam, what in your life could possibly be big to God? God does not mind our taking everything to him. We cry out to him with smallest need and the biggest need because he's our father if we become his adopted son or daughter in Jesus Christ he's rocking our boat or he will be soon teaches us on our own turf shatters limited expectations impresses us with the absolute priority of faith the first sin rebuked in the gospel of Luke unbelief that means something First time someone gets rebuked. It's Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. The archangel Gabriel comes to him and says, you guys are going to have a baby. And Zechariah becomes a motorboater. But, 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 but I'm old. But, 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 but my wife is old. You know what Gabriel's answer is? I am Gabriel. That's your answer. And when God tells me to come tell you this, it's going to happen. But just so you'll know that we mean it, you're not even going to be able to speak from this moment until when John the Baptist is born. And that's what happened. 
Unbelief is the thing for which Jesus most frequently rebukes his disciples. He didn't expect them to be beautiful or handsome, to impress everyone they met with their smooth sophistication. Uh, By the way, uh, he wasn't impressed with them. He just chose them because he somehow knew in his sovereign leading from the Father and the Spirit that God would use them, even use the one that would fall away. He didn't expect them to be equally fruitful, but he did expect them to trust him. Would Jesus lead us into a storm that wouldn't be useful to his kingdom? Like some of the turmoil you guys have gone through that have led to this interim? I mean, do you think Jesus was surprised by any of that? I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to preach through this series and as we dig more into the family of Jacob and the children is life is real and, and God is not surprised. Uh, We simply need to cling to one another as his people and move forward. Uh, One last question here as we move to the last point and wrap this up. Uh, Was Jesus really asleep or was he uh, faking it just to get their attention? I can't tell you more than the text tells you. But I believe he was really asleep. He knew his father. He knew Psalm 121. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Uh, I had an incredible season of mentoring in my life in Boston. Frank Jean, Shanghai-born Chinese, uh, taught me so much. He was such a godly leader. And he was often very busy and very tired, and I learned from him that sometimes at night he just put his head on the pillow and say, Father, uh, I am very tired. I'm going to sleep now. You stay up. Don't you just love that? Uh, Father, it's not going to get better because I stay awake another 10 hours. You're in charge here. I'm going to sleep. I I got a body. I need to rest. The absolute priority is on faith. New things on familiar territory, shattered, limited expectations. The absolute priority of faith. But most of all, Jesus leads us into storms that we might just utterly marvel at his divinity and his power. The point of the text is not simply that Jesus can calm the wind and the waves. The text says the point, who is he? What kind of a man is it that can do these kinds of things? This is not like a man. Psalm 89, 89, Stephen put it in our worship already this morning. Oh, Lord God Almighty, Who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea when its waves mount up. You still them. What kind of man is this? The disciples are finally being led to the place where they realize more than a man is among us. Have you been in the boat with him? Do you know his awesome divine power? Have you seen him deliver? I have in little ways and big, all small to him, and I give thanks and marvel. It's been fun meeting a lot of the crew folks in the church and finding out uh, the commonalities. Uh, um, When I worked for a summer in Crew's then California personnel department, uh, my close friend and co-worker, Jerry Sharpless, that I found out a few of you know, He and I were asked to get an applicant who very much wanted to come on crew staff, tell us he wasn't ready, wasn't mature enough, but an error had been made and he'd already been given early acceptance. 
So I turned to uh, the director and I said, are we ready to tell him that we're now rejecting him? Can I do that? And she said, no. Now, I'm not always smart, but Jerry and I knew Jesus better be in our boat and awake so that he could tell this guy what he needed to hear that Jerry and I weren't allowed to tell him. So Jerry and I, I remember it well, literally got on our knees and say, Lord, we can't say what needs to be said, but as we have our first meeting with him, will you please tell him? Because we could see a crisis coming and a battle coming. As our second interview with him began, we were trying to figure out what to say to push harder. The young man interrupted us, and with joy, with joy, said to us, I can't, I can't talk about that anymore. I want to tell you, I, this week I was praying, and I discovered that some of the things I've been dealing with in my life are just too important, and I don't have the maturity to come on staff right now. I am really sorry, but I can't come on staff. <laughs> and Jerry and I said, Wow, it really does help to get on your knees sometimes. Because sometimes God says, through your words, around your words, in spite of your words, what needs to be said. Do you know the wondrous power and deity of Christ? Is he real to you today? I met an MIT student. Uh, instead of being shocked or angry when I told him I worked with a campus ministry and wanted to talk to him, he said, I believe in God. And I don't know what possessed me, but... Uh, must have been the Holy Spirit. I said to him, oh, that's tremendous. Which God do you believe in? He said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, where did you find out about this God? Uh, what do you know about him? Uh, what do you believe him for? Uh, what does believe mean? Is it, is it trust? Is it, is it leaning on him? What are you trusting him for today? And he looked at us and he said, I don't have a clue. And it was as if 20 years of church experience and religious background at his home in Vermont just fell on the floor of the terrazzo tile of the MIT Student Center, and he was sitting there spiritually naked on the couch, and the MIT custodian just swept all that away. And he realized he didn't know who God was. Don't be like that young man. Be like the Apostle Paul who wrote, For I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which, which I have committed unto him against that day, the day of Christ's return. This God is involved. He will keep me safe. She was 87 years old. She memorized entire books of the Bible. Her hospital room smelled of approaching death. And for days she'd been quoting scripture. Near the end, it was that one verse from Paul. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. Against that day, she repeated it and repeated it, and as her voice grew faint, her strength failed. It got shorter and shorter and shorter until she was just whispering, him, him, him about her Lord Jesus. She said that the beauty of a life lived, and and death in all of its beauty because we know what comes next. Glory. Who is he? What kind of man is he that even the wind and the waves obey him? He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. 
The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Don't miss that term. That's like the guy that's with General Grant in the Civil War who's helping him make his war plans. The Wonderful Counselor who sets the strategies for what needs to come and what needs to happen. He is the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. No vain God. He is the eternal King, Christ Jesus. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's all about Him. May that be true, not just today, but on your dying day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are about to sing, all hail the power of Jesus. Crown him Lord of all. This is an opportunity to respond to the scripture by placing our trust in his power and the fact that Jesus is Lord of all. Please stand with us. Mm -hmm. 